This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In 1942, director Michael Curtiz and star Humphrey Bogart gave us a classic romance that many would say has never been topped. In 2019, Heaven Hill gives us a 94-proof bourbon that tries to top its competitors. The movie is Casablanca. The whiskey is Elijah Craig Small Batch. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we're looking at the 1942 film Casablanca. Fun fact, Bob is going to give this movie a 10 out of 10. Yeah, it's not not even a question. It's getting a 10 out of 10. We could pick the whole movie apart and talk about any logical inconsistencies that come up. I would give it a 10 out of 10. I don't care. It's my maybe my favorite movie of all time. That's a good question. We we should do an episode just about like our top five mo- sure. movies and why. Well, I mean, you know, part of the problem is that like I made up this list of movies that we're watching. So I think all my favorite movies are probably going <laughs> to come into it at some point. I, I'm really surprised. You know, this list started as a randomized thing that we did. Yeah. And Casablanca was randomized into this month's podcast. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those movies that. If people have seen it, people love it. It's yeah. one of the most universally loved movies of all time. But because it was made in 1942, I, I still think a lot of people haven't seen this And movie. I think that's why it's worth talking about. Yeah. But I'm, you know, it's one of those ones that I was hoping we could hold off on talking about because it's like, do we want to do Casablanca this early on in the podcast? Yeah. But look, but, man. But I you am, have no agency in the matter. I don't. <laughs> it was randomized <laughs> and we can't switch the list. By the internet gods. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They chose for you to talk about this movie on that's, this day. That's right. And I am always down to talk about Casablanca. So, Brad, had you seen Casablanca prior to this viewing? Yes. I'd seen it twice before, I think. Okay. I, I think I saw it in high school early on. And then maybe when I was right out of college, I remember watching it. Oh, okay. So, about four. Six or seven years ago and a decade ago. One of the problems with talking about a movie like this, and we're going to run into it with Citizen Kane. We're going to run into it with The Godfather. Any movie that's this popular and this well-loved. Yeah. It's kind of like, what is there to say about it? Yeah. You know, I, I can't give tons and tons of background. I do think that some of our listeners probably haven't seen Casablanca. And so it's worth talking a little bit about it. But I'm really excited to just hear, Brad, your take on things. Because yeah. I've probably seen this movie between 30 and 40 times. And Brad, you know, you've seen it this your third time seeing it. When you say 30 and 40, are you is that hyperbole? No, not even not even a little bit. Like I would you genuinely have probably seen it 38, nine. Yeah, like full times. That's insane. I love this movie, Brad. Man, what do you. So I guess it might be worth. Do you remember your first viewing of it? Yes, I do. How old were you? Uh, 14, 14. So I got into high school. And I just decided I saw the list of the American Film Institute's top hundred. People were calling you Bobby. Yes, they were at the time. Back in the day. And I just decided, like, you know, I should probably watch some of these movies. I love watching movies and I should see the classics. Right. 
And I think the first one I watched was on Turner Classic Movies, and it was Psycho. Oh, and then I watched Vertigo. And then from there, I was like off and running Vertigo. I watched that in high school and like I'm not a horror movie person. So this might affect me more than other people. I had like nightmares about that movie. Did you really? Vertigo was so intense. Well, I don't know if you've taken a look at our list, but it's coming up in like a month. I'm so excited. (laughs) Good. But let's get back to Casablanca. So this movie came out in 1942. It was not the prestige movie of the year from Warner Brothers. Um, It was not a movie that was supposed to win tons of Oscars, but it was so well beloved. It was a moneymaker and it launched, you know, the leading man career of Humphrey Bogart, because up to this point, he would basically just played like the gangster, the bad guy. And now here he is as a romantic love interest. That's so funny, because if you if you look back on the legacy of Humphrey Bogart, he's I, I honestly didn't even know that he was like the gangster bad guy. Yeah, I, I only mean, know him as the the heartthrob love interest. Sure. And and he plays this this role so well because you need a guy like Humphrey Bogart to be this sort of anti-hero that his character is. And what he offers this movie, I think it made the movie successful. This movie ends up winning Best Picture at the yeah. Oscars over movies that were supposed to be more quote unquote Oscar-y than it was. Right. And I think that speaks to even in this time, it is just an entertaining, crowd-pleasing movie. I mean, and it it goes so much deeper than that. But the number one thing about it is that I've never met anyone who walks away from this movie saying, I didn't like this movie. Really? Except for you. Are you going to say it? Oh, no, I love this movie. Oh, good, good, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah no, this this movie is brilliant. It's it's incredibly well made. The script, the cinematography, the, everything about this movie, the music. Yeah. As time goes by. Oh, well, okay, look, we, we have to press pause and we have to explain the movie. Okay. We okay. have to do a Brad Explains on the movie Casablanca. Uh, Brad Explains the movie. So Casablanca is a romance. It's a love story. And it is about Humphrey Bogart, who is a, a night. Is it a nightclub or a, a saloon? <laughs> yeah, I call bar? it a nightclub. Sure. So, yeah. So Humphrey Bogart owns a nightclub in Casablanca, which is an African town that is it's kind of a funnel into Lisbon, which is basically the way you escape from Nazi Germany right. during World War Two. You escape through Marseille. Down into Africa, you go through Casablanca to Lisbon so you can get to America so you can escape the Nazi regime. So the entire story is about a anti-Nazi like resistance movement guy named Victor Laszlo and his wife trying to escape. But then it turns out that his wife, played by Ingrid Bergman, was in love with Humphrey Bogart at one point. And so they get to Casablanca. They realize that Humphrey Bogart is running a nightclub there. And it is about their story and how they play it out. And, and it's it's brilliant. Yeah. It's perfect. I mean, there, there's so many things going on in this movie. It's it's intrigue. You know, it's suspense. It's a war movie in a way, you know, in, in that it's set during the war. Uh, but there's comedy. Yeah. There's romance. I mean, it, it is considered the greatest romance movie of all time. And yet the romance is not only what the movie's about. There's so much more going on beneath the surface. I was actually surprised that we talked about The Great Escape last week. And for me, there's actually a lot of corollaries as far as the feel of the movie between The Great Escape and this, because you fall in love with the characters. You really get invested with the piano player, Sam. Yeah. And you get invested with uh, with Humphrey Bogart and Victor Laszlo and, and all these people. 
But there's so much suspense in this movie where, just like with The Great Escape, I kind of have this feeling in the pit of my stomach, like, oh, man, like, are they going to get caught? Yeah. Are they going to get turned over? I, it just, it blew my mind how it wasn't just a romance. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in, in the very beginning of the film, there's this narration with this really cheesy looking globe that's rotating. And, and the narrator is talking about how everyone is stuck in Casablanca. Everyone's waiting for an exit visa to get out. And he even does the old timey exit visas. Yeah. Wow. Visa. <laughs> but everybody is stuck there. And so you go into the narrative of the movie knowing people are going to be double dealing. People are going to be backstabbing because they're all trying to get out of Nazi occupied Europe and in Africa here. But the point of all that is to say that everyone's kind of waiting for fate to step in. And interestingly enough, the only person who's not trying to get out of Casablanca is Rick. Is Rick, Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart's character. Yeah. He's the only one that's basically running away from fate. He doesn't want fate to intervene. He wants to stay in Casablanca. He wants to die there because we find out later because of his history with Ingrid Bergman's character. Right. Um, but he, you know, and he's become this hardened, cynical guy whose famous line is, I stick my neck out for no one. Right. And so all these criminals and seedy people that come into his nightclub that he knows, he doesn't stick up for them. Because he doesn't care anymore. And I love the scene when, uh, what I'm going to say Moriarty, which is obviously the villain from, what, what's the name of the seedy dude who gets shot at the start that gives him the oh, papers? Ugarty. Ugarty. See? Moriarty, yeah, Ugarty. Yeah. yeah. So Ugarty says, the reason I trust you is because you're the only person who doesn't like always smile at me and tell me that they like me. Right. Like you're the only person that's honest with me. Right. And there's something that about that that is so endearing with Rick that he's this cold-hearted person that you fall in love with because he's so honest. Yeah. And just for a second, the guy that plays Ugarty, Peter Lorre, he was he was famous in Germany. He came to America, you know, fled the Nazis, basically. Really? You know, became a pretty famous actor here as well. I love Peter Lorre because he looks like Steve Buscemi, <laughs> but he plays the character of Christoph Waltz. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, for sure. When when he was when he was uh on there, the way he talks and acts, it made me think, this is going to be a stretch. Yeah. Of Aladdin. Huh. When the genie does his death scene, you know what I'm talking about when Aladdin asks, when he's telling Aladdin the the qualifiers uh -huh, uh -huh. to the rule and he goes, "I cannot bring people back from the dead. It would be <laughs> nasty for some reason." That like that popped into my head as he was talking. I would not be surprised if Aladdin actually does have a Peter Lorre reference in there somewhere. Yeah. But anyway, all that to say this cast, every single person perfectly fits their role in this movie. Every person top to bottom. I mean, Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. Sure. But then you've got, you know, Peter Lorre. You've got uh, Paul on Reed playing uh, Victor Laszlo. You've got uh, Dooley Wilson playing Sam, the piano player. Conrad Veidt playing, you know, Major Strasser. Every person in this movie, Brad, is perfect. And I can't imagine this movie being played with anybody else. And I have to say, if if we're excluding Humphrey Bogart, the best person in this whole movie is Claude Rains. The French yes. lead guy? Yes. He is so funny in this movie. And, and we're going to skip ahead if we start talking about the script. But he is the perfect person Claude Rains is one of my favorite character actors of all time. If we ever get around to watching Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, he's the best thing about that movie, too. I've never seen Mr. Smith Goes oh, to Washington. Oh, man. I can't wait for you to see that. Yeah. 
But Claude Rains has all of the witty, cynical dialogue. He's kind of he's kind of a creep. Yeah. You know, the implication is that he's like sleeping with all these girls to get either get information out of them or to give them exit visas to get out of Casablanca. And yet somehow they make him so charming yeah. and so disarming that you just buy into it. Well, and even his character helps set up the character of Rick at the very start of the movie when Rick, the one girl is drunk and she's trying to come on to Rick and he forces her away and sends her home. Yep. And and he and he says, you know, I don't know if I'd be turning away women the way you are. Right. Because they might not always be in such easy supply for you. You know, I do want to get into the script because um, I'm going to just come out and say it now and I'll probably regret it at some later point. But I think this is the best script ever written. Wow. I think this is number one. And it's not a stretch to say that because there are tons of screenwriters that think that, too. Yeah. Every line of dialogue has meaning. A lot of them have more than one meaning to them. But even like the throwaway banter, uh, the the first night, this film basically takes place over three days. And that first night, Rick goes outside and is sitting kind of on the patio of the nightclub uh, with Captain Renault, Claude Rains. And they start kind of bantering back and forth. And Claude Rains asks Humphrey Bogart, you know, what what brought you here to Casablanca? And he starts going through all these scenarios. Did you run off with a senator's wife or take the church's money? Right. And Humphrey Bogart says, you know, I came to Casablanca for the waters. It was for my health. Yeah. He says, what waters? We're in the desert. And he says, I was misinformed. (laughs) You never find out his he doesn't want to give away his background. And it's important to his character. But in the moment, it's just this witty, witty dialogue that you get. Right. I think my favorite this might be bad. I think my favorite line from the movie mm-hmm. is when the Nazis shut down the bar. Oh, yeah. And they they basically force Captain Renault because they have no authority there. Right. But they force Captain Renault to shut it down. And he goes, he goes, what on what grounds are you shutting me down, Renault? And he goes, I am shocked, shocked that you would have gambling in this establishment. And then the maitre d' comes up and says, here are your winnings, sir. <laughs> he goes, oh, thank you. He puts him in his pocket. <laughs> like, there's obviously so many classic perfect lines from this movie. Yeah. But for some reason, that's the one that has stuck with me. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the, the classic lines from this movie, because we've talked a little bit about Humphrey Bogart. We've talked a little bit about Claude Rains. But you can't go any further into this movie without talking about Ingrid Bergman. Yeah. And Ingrid Bergman has maybe the most famous line from this movie. It's right up there with some others, but it's the most misquoted quote in movie history. Uh, People think that she looks at Sam, the piano player, and says, play it again, Sam. And that's not what she says. She says, play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. And Ingrid Bergman in this movie is so perfect. I mean, first of all, she may be the most beautiful woman to have ever existed, right? To have graced the earth. To have Hel- ever graced- Helen of Troy has nothing no. on Ingrid Bergman. When Dooley Wilson starts playing as time goes by. When he starts playing it, they cut back to Ingrid Bergman's face. Yeah. And you know that these two characters have a history. You know that somehow she knows Humphrey Bogart, but you don't know how. And that won't be revealed for probably another 10 minutes of the film. Yeah. They cut back to Ingrid Bergman's face and, and it is an sit on it unbroken such a long shot for like 25 seconds. Yeah. And you, her small facial expressions and the sadness and the regret and the trip down memory lane, you see everything in her face. And it's a close up. I literally when that scene happened, I was mesmerized. Yeah. And I think that this is another example of where older films can do so much more because they couldn't do all the things that they can do in today's film industry, where you truly had to act 
not only well, but you had to act perfectly in a way to draw the audience in to the emotions of the scene. And she typifies that perfectly in that scene. I was so drawn in by her wistful, mesmerized by hearing this music played by an old friend about an old love. That scene drew me in. I think part of it, too, is that you have to have a director that's willing to go there. Yeah. You know, because the camera moves a lot in this movie. It's I mean, it's quickly paced. And for Michael Cortese to make the directorial decision to sit a camera down in front of Ingrid Bergman and have a shot where nothing happens and it's a close up on her face for 30 seconds, even back then, that's a bold move. But it pays off. I mean, and she has the chops to sell it, too. It kind of makes me think of when we were talking about Some Like It Hot and and this is an unfortunate thing, but when uh, Tony Curtis said to the director, like, well, I'm not getting, you know, this wasn't a perfect take for me. And he basically said, when Marilyn Monroe is on camera, nobody's looking at you. Like she is the magnet of the film. Yeah. And like, you know, that might've been unfortunate in that case, but in this case, Ingrid Bergman truly brings this film to life with her emotion, with her passion, with the, she is so well, thought through her characters well written yep i yeah and the directorial decision to sit with her in those moments is brilliant but it's not just her either and i think that this is i've seen a lot of humphrey bogart movies and treasure of the sierra madre is right up there for me this is still in my opinion the best humphrey bogart performance and it's because of one scene and it might not be the scene you're thinking of but the the scene with the famous line you know of all the gin joints in all the towns is my favorite scene in movie history, I think. Yeah. Because it it's, so first of all, it's crucial ex- to the explain, plot. Explain the scene a little I'm, bit. Yeah, I'm going to. Yeah. So, okay, so uh, the first day of the movie, basically there's this level of intrigue that someone has murdered German couriers. They've brought letters of transit that could let anybody get out. In, scot-free. Scot-free into Casablanca. And you find out that this guy, Ugarte, who murdered the couriers, was supposed to be meeting Victor Laszlo, Ingrid Bergman's husband, in Casablanca, and they were both going to get out. Anyway, everything gets fouled up. Ugarte gets arrested. Humphrey Bogart comes to possess these letters of transit, and he's hiding them in uh, the restaurant, in the nightclub. And that same night, Laszlo comes into the nightclub, and who's on his arm but Ingrid Bergman? Yeah. Now, Humphrey Bogart doesn't know that they're married at this point. And so they have this kind of clash where there's a lot of unspoken things. He goes up to their table, and he knows Laszlo's wife, but he doesn't know Laszlo. They go home for the night and you come back into the nightclub when everything's shut down and Humphrey Bogart is just drinking himself into a stupor. And the, and they've set up the fact that he doesn't drink. Not not with customers, at least, either. Right. Yeah. And so he's he's in here and he's getting sloshed. Yeah. Uh, and this scene that follows uh, his his partner in crime, Sam, who plays the piano for him, comes wandering in and he finds Rick in there and he's aren't you going to bed? No, I'm not going to bed. I'm waiting for a lady. Because he thinks Ingrid Bergman is going to come back for him. Right. And in the middle of all of this, he allows himself to go down memory lane. All these things that he suppressed that you kind of know that his character doesn't want to go back down memory lane. And you get this flashback sequence of him with Ingrid Bergman and their time in Paris because they were in love and she left him. She abandoned him and he doesn't know why. And he's been heartbroken about it. But before they have this flashback, Humphrey Bogart is just drinking and drinking. Yeah. And he has this just this heartbreaking like monologue where he's talking to Sam, but he's not really talking to Sam. He asks some questions like, if it's December 1941 in Casablanca, what time is it in New York? 
and you have this idea that he's regretting everything. Not only is he regretting the Ingrid Bergman of it all, but he's regretting that he left America. He's regretting that he can't go back for whatever reason. And he slams his hand on the table. And, you know, he he says the famous line of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world. She walks into mine. And you have this idea that she's thrown off his whole life. Yeah. More than once now. And it really is this crushing scene. He asks uh, uh, Sam to play as time goes by the same way that he did for Ingrid Bergman. And you understand that this is a really important song for both of them. If you can play it for her. You can play it for me. Yeah. And the camera pushes in to Humphrey Bogart's face. And it's my favorite Bogart moment of all time. He starts to hear this song being played in the background. And he has this like really intense focus. He's about to cry. And then he just breaks. And he goes, oh. And, you know, that's not scripted. It's a Humphrey Bogart thing. Humphrey Bogart does not get enough attention or credit for the subtlety that he brings to this role. Because we know we know Bogart. We know yeah. here's looking at you, kid. Right. But we don't give credit to the really nuanced, subtle ways that he goes about portraying this heartbroken man. I think that's something as as like a film novice, I sometimes forget the amount of choice that the actors have in how they play characters. And that in a lot of ways, I don't know, everything feels so produced and everything feels so directed that sometimes you forget that these actors make choices on how to play a character that all they have to bring this character to life is a script and obviously the director gives them direction on like well in this moment you're feeling this and i want you to express these emotions but they still have to make choices on how they express those emotions and what their facial features do and they have to have control over all those things. And you see that in Humphrey Bogart yeah. in that moment. And he makes a choice to to break in that way that is so relatable that just draws us into his character. Absolutely. And and with Bogart, too, it's everything about him. Like, he is obviously the perfect person to play this anti-hero character. But, I mean, even when uh, Laszlo and his wife come in and they're sitting at a table with Captain Reno and everyone's doing this kind of... Uh, congenial like you know putting on airs for each other right it almost feels like a vaudeville performance of like nobody's saying what they really want to be saying bogart just comes in and crashes it yeah and he sits down and he's lounging on the chair and kicking his legs back and i'm first of all he's just the pinnacle of cool yeah oh yeah but he's he's doing what no one else will do you know and, and he looks right at victor laszlo's wife and they talk about how they knew each other and everyone's getting kind of uncomfortable and he looks at her and says I remember every detail. The Germans wore gray. You wore blue. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, can you imagine being this lady's husband right now? Yeah. But he doesn't care. And I think the way that Bogart is able to balance how his character can be kind of a jerk at points until he finds out the real story with also us sympathizing with him. It's it's a beautiful performance. Rick, I have to talk to you. Uh I say my first drink to have with you here. No, no, Rick, not tonight. Especially tonight. Why did you have to come to Casablanca? There are other places. I wouldn't have come if I'd known that you were here. Believe me, Rick, it's true. I didn't know. Funny about your voice, how it hasn't changed. I can still hear it. Richard, dear, I'll go with you any place. We'll get on a train together and never stop. Don't, Rick. I can understand how you feel. Uh You understand how I feel. How long was it we had, honey? I didn't count the days. Well, I did. Every one of them. Mostly I remember the last one. The wow finish. A guy standing on a station platform in the rain with a comical look on his face because his insides had been kicked out. Can I tell you a story, Ricky? 
got a wow finish? I don't know the finish yet. Well, go on, tell us. Maybe one will come to you as you go along. The, the scary thing for me in this movie, and this, I don't know if we need to say the words, spoiler alert, but like, the scary thing for me about this movie was, do you remember when we watched An American in Paris and how the two main characters fall in love and the guy that's supposed to main the main fe- marry the main female character is just kind of like, oh, well, wee oui, wee, oui, you go off and be with your American right. beau. And you're just kind of like, wait a second, like, I thought you were in love with this girl. Yeah. I was worried that that was going to happen. In this movie, that Victor Laszlo was just going to be like, oh, well, you fell in love while you're in Paris. I yeah. guess you can just go be with Humphrey Bogart now. Right. Which doesn't happen. But there was something about that scene when they first meet in the saloon where I was kind of like, bro, you do realize that your wife is like, this dude's like hitting on your wife right now. Yeah. And he's referencing a former love relationship that you, they had. Right. And he's just kind of like sitting there. Nonchalant about it. Yeah, so I, and obviously the fact that he's French, it's a World War II style movie, made me think about an American in Paris. Yeah. But that, I don't know why, but that popped into my head and I was just like, ooh, I don't know how I feel about that. Right. And even later in the movie, Victor Laszlo says to Ingrid Bergman, he, he, he basically says like, was there something between the two of you? Yeah. As if he didn't know, like. It was super obvious. <laughs> very, was very, very obvious. Them. What I love about this movie though, and, and you know, Having seen it so many times, I know like every beat of the movie and you really remember like the end sequence, which again, you know, we get into spoilers here, but the here's looking at you, kid. Yeah. What leads up to that, though, is that Rick Humphrey Bogart's character, in order to sell what his plan is, which is Victor and Ilsa have to get on this plane together and not me. Right. There's only two letters of transit to get out of here. He has to lie to everyone, basically, and, and make it seem like he's going to steal this guy's wife. And he's so successful at it because yeah. you really are convinced up until the moment that he pulls a switcheroo on the audience and everyone in the movie right. that he's about to do it. And I think that for the direction and the script to go in that direction and sell us on it really says something. Yeah. I With that scene, it, there's two problems that I one of the main problems I had with this movie for some reason, I got the impression that the two letters of transit were on two separate people. And the person that they killed at the very start of the movie had one of the letters of transit, and Ugardi only had one. Oh. Okay. I was under the impression the So I know, movie, I know what you're referring to. So at the very beginning of the movie, they're kind of showing the audience what it's like around Casablanca right. with all these CD characters. People are getting pickpocketed and things like that. The police pull some guy over and basically say like, where are your papers? And he gives them false papers right. and then runs off right. and they shoot him in the back. Yeah. They pull out of his pocket materials that are, uh, uh la resistance, like, you know, the French oh. resistance. And that's why it says like Viva la resistance. And I thought those were important too. Okay. But I think all that was trying to, to set up was that the French resistance is at work here. Yeah. Against the Nazis who are also coming in. So for me, I thought that meant that, Two men had separately each letter of transit, right, right. and Ugardi only had one. So I thought the whole movie that the the dilemma was: do we give it to Victor or Ilsa? Or Ilsa. That's what I thought the dilemma was. Only one of them could get away. Yeah, yeah. And so that so that was a struggle for me when all of a sudden they were just like, "Oh yeah, we're both leaving," and I was like, "Well, wait a second. <laughs> There's only one and... letter of transit, right?" So that I will say that's probably the only part of the movie that I was 
frustrated by that I thought was written poorly. Uh-huh. I think they probably could have done a better job of saying the dude that just got killed didn't have the letter of transit. Yeah, I agree with that. But all that put to the side, the closing scene when Rick basically, he says to Ilsa, you told me to do the thinking for both of us, and I did. You have to escape with your husband because what he is doing is of more importance than any of our love stories. And I don't know if we've established this, but his his position basically is he's a leader of the resistance movement. Right. He Yeah, he's a Frenchman that is in charge of a huge, massive Europe-wide resistance mm-hmm. of the, the Nazi regime. Right. And so there's something about that moment. And the funny thing is, we call this probably the classic love film, right? Mm-hmm. It's the classic romance. But the moral of the entire movie is there are some things more important than love. Well, and I think it's it's that love can take on many forms and that the, the main characters don't have to end up together for us to understand the depths of his love for her. Which is why I think this is one of the most important films of all time is because it expands our idea of what love is. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the key of why this is such a great movie is because you know why they love each other. And I think a modern film would have either Laszlo killed or Laszlo leave and they would have Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart end up together. Well, it's funny you should mention that because they tested this out with a bunch of different kinds of endings. Okay. And I think what they found was, A, the censors wouldn't let it happen, but it wouldn't have tested well for Humphrey Bogart to steal another guy's wife. Yeah. They were not big on adultery <laughs> represented in movies at the time. In the, the time. 1930s and So 40s. I think it had to, they had to find a way to get Ilsa and Victor together at the end of the movie. But the way that they go about doing it and tying up every loose end is is really brilliant. Too. Yeah. We can get into this to, in the second half. Do you think it's in any way sexist the way they portray Ingrid Bergman as wanting to be unfaithful, as mm. being a prey to her emotions and her love for Rick, that she would be unfaithful and abandon her husband? I don't think that the movie passes judgment on her because they always hold her intention with Humphrey Bogart and Humphrey Bogart's willing to do even more terrible things than she is. I mean, I think it's established that she thought her husband was dead Yeah, when they were in Paris because he was leading the resistance and they reported back that he had died. She falls in love with Humphrey Bogart. But when she gets word that her husband's not dead, you know, she she kind of does her duty as a spouse and she goes back to her husband. That's why she left Humphrey Bogart in the first place. But but she literally says, I could never leave you again. Yeah. If you ask me to stay, I will. Well, again, and that's that gets into they had a really passionate affair and they were in love with each other. And those those emotions don't just go away when they meet up again. And so I don't I don't see the movie passing judgment on her. I do think that kind of dances around the issue of adultery a little bit. Yeah. Um, and this is something we can get into a little bit later because I think there's a really key scene that doesn't involve those two that kind of talks about the movie's attitude towards these things too. But for right now, I think it's time for us to pop open this Elijah Craig small batch. What do you say? Let's do it. So today we are looking at Elijah Craig Small Batch, 1789 Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. It's a 94 proof. Yes, meaning that it is alcoholic. 47% alcohol. 47%. What? We do you know why they call it proof? I don't. I remember hearing at one point 
that I feel like it had to do with moonshine, but I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. Cool. So Elijah Craig is manufactured <laughs> by, by the Heaven Hill Distillery. Uh, it actually first debuted back in 1986, and at that point, it was labeled as a 12-year age statement. Okay. Uh, but a couple years ago, Heaven Hill said, we're not going to have enough whiskey to keep doing this in a 12-year. So they dropped the age statement, and basically what they're doing now is they're blending an 8-year and a 12-year to kind of stretch their supply. So it's a 10-year. So, well, yeah. The way that age statements work is it has to go by the youngest uh, alcohol in the blend. Okay. So it's an 8-year, basically. Um, and they've also, they used to do it in batches of no more than 100 uh, barrels blended to make a small batch. And now they're doing 200 barrels. And that's the crazy thing about like distilling spirits in general is when you're distilling something and you're going to put it in a barrel for 12 years, you're essentially trying to predict how much of this you're going to sell 12 years from now. Yeah. So it's not like Elijah Craig can just say, oh, well, we're a little short. Let's throw some more in a barrel and have enough for 2020. Right. They had to do that in 2008. Right. And so and so that's the difficulty when you look at this stuff that it makes sense that they had to start combining Absolutely. this with their other stuff. Well, they actually do have a uh, Elijah Craig small batch that's barrel proof. And that is 12 year. OK. And the really cool thing about that is that the proof on it varies between 125 and 140 because it depends on the batch. Wow. Yeah. Right. That is a. 140, 140 proof. I don't know if I'd want that, dude. Ooh, that 70% would be fire. alcohol. So, but we have a 94 proof uh, small batch bourbon here. Brad, what are we picking up on the nose here? Oh, bourbon has such a good smell to it. Mm-hmm. I think that's consistently bourbon has my favorite nose for any whiskey that I drink. Yeah. Ugh. See, this one, it seems lighter on the nose than a lot of bourbons we've had. It just yeah. doesn't seem like it has that sort of like dark molassesy. Kind of Ooh, smell to are, it. Are we going down? Are we going down the Maker's Mark Forty Six route? <laughs> <laughs> no, we, I would agree with you though. It it doesn't quite have as viscous of a smell to stop it. Stop it. That doesn't <laughs> even apply here, Brad. Let's take a sip. You know, that's just okay. All right. Here's my thoughts. Uh, it's really, really sweet up front, like tip of my tongue. You get that bourbon sweetness. Yeah. Ooh. Sorry. <laughs> Bob just got excited. Did the burn hit you all of a sudden? Or? No, you roll it to the back of your mouth and it, it has some spice to it. You swallow it and like it, it's peppery. Like it's definitely not an alcohol burn. It's pepper. Yeah. And the finish, I was like, nah, because the finish kind of disappears. And then I breathed in and I started to get these really like, like a vanilla and some cinnamon after I swallowed it. Hmm. It, I feel like it opened up more in the finish. I think it hits the tongue really hard hmm. at the very opening. Mm-hmm. It does have the sweetness, but for me, there's a steady burn throughout. But like you said, it's not necessarily alcohol. Pepper is a good adjective. It it, it, it kind of has that peppery feel to it. Yeah. Wow, that's good. Man, I thought it was going to be just okay. And then if you give the finish a couple seconds, the, the flavor and the alcohol disappear which I thought was going to really lower my score for the finish. And then all of a sudden, these really sweet notes of like baking spices start to come out. I don't know if I totally agree with you. Wow. I, I'm struggling with the overall balance. For me, there's a lot of burn throughout. Even sitting here 20 seconds after having taken my last sip, I still just kind of have a burn in the bottom of my throat uh-huh. that isn't great. We might be split on this one. I'm, yeah. I'm really enjoying this. So we've talked about the finish a little bit, but Brad, do you want to add anything to the finish? 
I I kind of see what you're saying where you, you can kind of breathe and get those hints of vanilla. But for me, I feel like my throat has been kind of charred. So I, <laughs> Like a toasted oak barrel? Yeah, like a toasted oak barrel. And I don't know if I can really catch those quite as well. All right. Well, why don't we do this? Let's start scoring. Yeah. And then we'll we'll come back with our final thoughts. So on the nose, I did not really care for the nose. This was that was probably the, my least favorite part of this bourbon. Um, it's brighter, but there's not a lot of complexity to it. I would probably give the nose a five. I would give it a six and a half. I, six and a half. Okay. I, I actually liked the nose decently well. It's it's not the best bourbon I've ever smelt, but I, I liked it pretty well. Okay. Uh, taste I loved. I. I mean, really sweet up front. You get that nice peppery uh, spice to it on the back. I didn't have a lot of alcohol burn. Mm-hmm. Um, it disappeared pretty quickly, but that's more finished than taste. I would, I think I'd give this an eight. Eight, if we're wow. doing If we're doing halves, I'd give it an eight and a half what, on what taste. What did you give the nose? Uh, five. Five. I'd give it an eight and a half on taste. So I'm, I'm going to stick in the same range. I thought the taste was decent, but not spectacular. I'm going to give it a six and a half. All right. So what about the finish? The finish wasn't that great for me. I, I know you really like the vanilla-y yeah. kind of peppery cooking spices. For me, I didn't get those. I'm going to give it a six. I have a feeling that that's going to be the most divisive thing for people about this bourbon is that the finish itself, what people generally talk about, you know, what lingers on the palate goes away pretty quickly. Like there's it burns and then it's gone. Yeah. But that extra layer that I got of what was still let, like the residual tastes flavors that were left over yeah. really opened up after the that fact residual viscosity just shut up man <laughs> i so i'll split the difference i'll give it a six and a half on the finish okay uh overall balance what do you think i thought it was a well balanced um i'm gonna give it a seven i would also give it a seven just because the nose didn't live up to the rest of it for me yeah the funny thing is i, I think i liked the nose a little bit more than the rest of it but yeah it's decently well balanced. And what about value? So we paid, um, I think for a fifth, it's about $28. How much did you, so this is a pint. How much did you pay for the pint? The pint was 18, I want to say. So what about value then? When you're looking at value for a fifth of Elijah Craig, you are looking at about 28 with tax and stuff about, it's a $30 bottle of bourbon. Which is pretty standard. I mean, you're talking about a mid-shelf bourbon and you're getting a small batch yeah i i think for what you get i actually think this is quite a good value i would i would give it a nine on value wow that is a high score i honestly was thinking that i would not spend thirty dollars on this i'm gonna give it a four on value so so this is the thing you know value is our new category that we're trying out here but i guess my question is if you could buy something at a similar price point that was made the same way like a small batch yeah that you enjoyed, yeah. like your value score would go way up, right? So how much does your enjoyment of it really factor into the value? Because just to, I think just to say I wouldn't spend $30 on it doesn't yeah. mean that 30 for a small batch bourbon isn't a bad price. You're probably right. But for example, the James E. Pepper 1776 yeah. is the exact same price point, yeah. And I would buy that any day over this. I get that. And so for me, that like for me, that is a large part of value. Yeah, I mean, maybe, I, maybe I'm maybe i weighing too heavily enjoyment. Maybe for me, value is just, did I enjoy this? I get that. So what are you coming out to, Brad? Because I came out to a 36. Uh, let's see. I came out to a 30. 30 out of 50. Okay, so split the difference. We're at a 33 out of 50. Yeah. Which makes this, you know, an upper third kind of a whiskey. 
Yeah, and I, I know I was a little bit harsh on this, probably just because Bob was a little bit more positive about it. But, like, it, it's a good bourbon. It's it's not bad. It, it it hits the palate well. Yeah. It has good flavors. It has a good nose. Um, it's a solid bourbon. But for me, it, it it's just okay. I do think that this is worth the price, especially at only $28, $29, because I'm picking up flavors in this that I don't get in really cheap, low-end, low-grade bourbons. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously, Which is why you're paying $15 more. Exactly. If they were charging 40 or $50 for this, I don't think it would be a good value. But it's right in that middle tier. You're going to find it on the middle shelf. And I think that it is comparable to, you know, a Buffalo Trace or anything in that price point. Yeah. All right. So uh, that has been Elijah Craig's Small Batch. Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about Casablanca? So that was Elijah Craig's small batch. I was more impressed than Brad was. Wah, wah. Brad told me I could take the bottle home with me. So yeah. that is what I shall do. Yeah, that's that's not accurate. It was it was a good bourbon. It was my, good. Not my favorite. Yeah. But you know what is my favorite? Casablanca. Casablanca. W- would you put it number one? On my favorites list? Yeah. It's, it's way up there. Yeah. I think my favorite probably changes from day to day. But yeah. like it's top three favorite of all time, I'd say. I, I think that's one of the things that's hard is that there, there are certain movies that you would put in your top five. Where like any one of those probably could be your favorite at Absolutely. any moment, and th- and it does kind of change. And that's like, not to say that I I find there are parts of this movie. We got about thirty five forty minutes into it last night, and we were at the gin joints scene. Mm-hmm. I looked over at Carrie, my wife, and I said, "This is a perfect movie." Yeah, that first forty five minutes, especially like I can't think of another stretch of movie that goes on that long that's that perfect, except maybe the opening wedding sequence in The Godfather. Like, yeah, it's just perfect. Well, we've talked about this before. To Kill a Mockingbird is a great movie, but the courtroom sequence is is a part, is a perfect part of a movie that if it was on its own, it would be a perfect movie. Now, I will say, and this is maybe just because I've watched it 30 something times and I'm looking for nitpicky things now. The middle section did drag a little bit for me. Like when... When Bogart and Ilsa kind of reunite in the marketplace on the second day um, and he's apologizing and there it's it's all exposition. It's all where's the letters of transit? How do we get Victor out of here? That sequence kind of dragged a little bit for me, but it didn't take the movie down overall, in my opinion. Yeah, it didn't go from being a 10 out of 10 to a 9.99, 9.8. Yes, still a 10 out of 10. It's still a 10. You know, if you're going to call it a 10, call it a 10. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about. What Brad was suggesting before we took a break, which was, is this movie's attitude towards Ingrid Bergman a little bit sexist? Yeah. Or is it blaming her for the sort of adulterous relationship that she has with Humphrey Bogart? And I don't see it that way. I think that the the script does a really good job of setting up that they really are kind of star-crossed lovers, that fate is just not going to let them be together. But that doesn't keep her from loving him. And it also doesn't keep her for from fulfilling her duties as a spouse either. Yeah. Well, I I think for a time it illustrates that because eventually they couldn't live in Casablanca forever. Right. Either she would cheat on her husband or spurn Richard again. And that's that if yeah. they stayed in Casablanca for a long time. And so the film necessarily has to have them leave because otherwise she would cheat on her husband. Yeah. Let's be really honest. She's more in love with Humphrey, with Bogart. Humphrey Bogart than sure. she is with her husband. Sure. Which is unfortunate. Uh, my, like, my favorite moment. Like Victor Laszlo is a great guy. He's a he's a fantastic human being, and he looks at her at one point and says, "I love you very much, my dear." And she goes, "Yes." 
What? I was like, ouch. Yeah. Yes. What do and, you mean? Yes. And that's one of my struggles with the movie is Victor Laszlo is such a great guy yeah. that it, in my mind, yes, I understand that you fell in love with this man in Paris and you thought your husband was dead and yep. it's understandable and it's kind of like a like a castaway sort of, I thought you were dead, so I moved on. Yeah. But with that, I man, I just struggle with her indifference towards Victor Laszlo mm. throughout the movie. Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, hmm. that that was probably the biggest struggle for me. Yeah, is how quickly she falls back in love with Humphrey Bogart. with Humphrey Bogart it, because she has now been able to spend time with her husband. Yeah, for I, how much time do you think has passed? Like two years, a yeah, year? It's been a couple years, sure. So long in enough my for mind, him to set up the most successful nightclub in Casablanca. Yeah, for sure. And so I look at that and I go, she spent years with this person. Yeah, and and I look at that and I think, man, like. Wouldn't you think that she would have fallen in love with her husband enough that she wouldn't just fall head over heels for Rick again? That was a struggle for me in this movie. I mean, you made the comparison earlier to An American in Paris, and I, I don't think it's a bad comparison because all through that film, you know, Leslie Caron is in love with Gene Kelly. And she's basically saying, I love the guy I'm going to marry, but that's because of what he did for me as a person. Yeah. Um, and it was less about a romantic love. For me, that's different because when Leslie Caron fell in love with her person, it wasn't from a sense of falling in love. It was from a sense of duty. Like he saved her when she was a child and she grew up knowing him and it was expected of her to marry him. They definitely set up this idea of I was expected to be with this man. Whereas in Casablanca, they don't talk at all about their past, about Ingrid Bergman's past, Elsa's yeah. past. And so you have this sense that she fell in love with Victor Laszlo at one point, married him, he died, she then fell in love with Rick when she never thought she would fall in love again because she had loved her husband at first. So for me, there's a sense of like, when she found out that her husband was alive, she should find those old feelings she had for him and fall back in love with him. And you don't get that at all. So there's this great scene in the movie where a young Bulgarian couple comes into Rick's and the husband is trying to win at roulette. And of course he's losing because the game's rigged. Right. But basically it's implied that Captain Reno, Claude Rains' character is going to hook them up with exit visas. If the wife sleeps with him, sex is used as a tool in this movie in ways that really got around the 1942 censors. But this young woman sits down with Humphrey Bogart and is basically asking advice and and asking if I sleep with Captain Reno, is he going to, follow through on his word when we get out of here and Bogart tells her yeah he he really will and she starts asking Humphrey Bogart about the morality of it right she says you know if if the wife were to do a bad thing to make sure that she and her husband could be in love forever is that okay we do not want our children to grow up in such a country and so you decided to go to America yes but we have not much money and traveling is so expensive and difficult it was much more than we thought to get here and then Captain Renault sees us, and he is so kind, he wants to help us. Yes, I'll bet. He tells me he can give us an exit visa, but but we have no money. Does he know that? Oh, yes. And he's still willing to give you a visa? Yes, monsieur. And you want to know? Will he keep his word? He always has. Oh. Monsieur, you are a man. If someone loved you very much... So that your happiness was the only thing that she wanted in the world. She did a bad thing to make certain of it. Could you forgive her? Nobody ever loved me that much. And he never knew 
and the girl kept this bad thing locked in her heart. That would be all right, wouldn't it? You want my advice? Oh, yes, please. Go back to Bulgaria. Oh, but if you knew what it means to us to leave Europe, to get to America. Oh, but if Jan should find out. He is such a boy. In many ways, I, I am so much older than he is. Yes, well, everybody in Casablanca has problems. Yours may work out. You'll excuse me. Thank you, monsieur. She doesn't know what's going on with Humphrey Bogart in that moment. And, right. and Humphrey Bogart decides instead of weighing that option to let them win at roulette and get the money they need to go. And he's doing that because he feels morally conflicted about what he's doing with Ingrid Bergman. Like they are having an adulterous relationship or they're going to at least. And he knows she's doing it ultimately to get out of Casablanca, either with him or without him. Right. Because he says that at the end of the movie, he looks at Victor and says, hey, she came to my place last night and she tried to convince me. She pretended and I let her pretend. Now, I, I do think that she wasn't really pretending. I really I do think say, she I loved think him. I think he was saying that for... For Victor's sake. Yes. But what I'm saying is he he didn't want to perpetuate that kind of relationship with that young couple. And I think that shows us what the movie's attitude is towards the adulterous stuff. Because we know that in war, people have to do stuff that they are going to regret. They're going to have to rob and steal and cheat. Desperate times call for desperate exactly. measures. And Bogart doesn't want to deal with the moral repercussions of the actions that he's taking. I mean, it's somebody else's wife. Yeah. And so he gives himself an out in that scenario. And then he also gives himself an out at the end of the movie. I don't like the way you said that though. I don't think he gives himself an out. Well, I think he makes, he the solves right, the problem. He yes. makes the right decision. Exactly. He does. He makes the correct moral decision. Yeah. And so I don't think it's fair for us to punish Ingrid Bergman for that either, because I think the movie sets up that, Women like this young woman and Ingrid Bergman will do what they have to do to ensure their own survival. And so I don't think we should pass judgment on Ingrid Bergman for that. So the reason I said I use the word sexist is because it seems to portray her in a manner where she can't control her emotion. Because she's still in love with Bogart. Because she's still in love with Bogart and she would throw away everything she has to be with him because of her love for him. That's fair. And to me, that is a slightly sexist interpretation of women. Because I don't think all women are controlled by their emotions. That's a good they, point, because Bogart's not presented that way. He's presented as the one who's going to solve all the problems. Exactly. And so, he, and granted, that is that is a 1942 perspective. So I don't think we should punish them for being from the 1920s and 30s. But you're right. She should have had more agency over what she was doing. Exactly. That, I get that. That's, that's a good point. That's what I'm saying. And, and, and that was my struggle with it, is that it, I just don't think that Ingrid Bergman had to be controlled by her passions yeah. the way that they portrayed her to be. Yeah. You know, whereas with the young couple, that young couple, you could tell the young girl was in love with her husband and would sleep with Renault to protect her family. It, mm -hmm. It's the age-old question. If your family is starving, is it wrong for you to steal bread? Exactly. That's what she was asking him. Whereas for Ingrid Bergman, there is no stealing bread. If Richard had sent off Victor Laszlo with the transit papers and kept her in Casablanca, she would have been just as happy. That's a fair point. I don't think that she was worried about survival, whether it was with Victor or Rick. It They portrayed her to me in a sense of, I have to be with Rick no matter the cost. Mm. And that's where I struggled with her character. Yeah. I, I don't think she had enough depth. I think that's a good point. And it just goes to show, even in a movie like Casablanca, there are things to nitpick about. Yeah. But that gets us to our final scores. We, we already, One out of ten, Bob. 
We already know. Terrible movie. We already know that I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. Like, even with the nitpicky things that I saw last night on my 40th viewing. Yeah. I'm not dropping it down. If you watch the movie 40 times, listen, my I have a two-year-old son. We have watched the movie Coco 758 times. And, like, I still love Coco. Yeah. Of course, after viewing it 100 times, you're going to find something to complain about. Casablanca is as close to a perfect movie as humanity will ever achieve, then yeah. it is a 10 out of 10. Will ever achieve. Ever, ever. Brad, what do you give it? Nine and a half. Nine and a half out of 10. Yeah. I I agree. Man, I agree with you that it... Hmm. I just want to double check because I want to make sure. Yeah. The Aviator is a better film than Casablanca. So that that's part of the problem with ranking all these films that I'm running into. Yeah. Is that sometimes my ranking for a film doesn't associate with, with all score. of my other rankings yeah. that I've given yeah, other yeah. films. But when you give something a score and you've given a bunch of other things a score, yeah. they are automatically related to each other. I get that. So the the hard thing for me is, is Casablanca a better film than Some Like It Hot? Yes. And the answer universally would be yes. Did I enjoy Some Like It Hot more than Casablanca? Brad. <laughs> and the answer is yes. What? What? <laughs> How can you enjoy anything in life more than Casablanca? <sighs> All right. I, I can't complain too much. Brad and, gave it a nine and a half. And, and that's the struggle for me. I recognize that it's a perfect movie. <laughs> but, but it's a nine and a half. But for but and that's the thing. Am I giving it a score based on its critical qualities, or am I giving it a score based on my enjoyment of the film? That's I I completely get and, it. Dude. And honestly, I make fun of Goodfellas a lot, but I gave the film an eight and a half. If I gave that film based on my enjoyment, I would have given it a four or five. Yeah. But I recognize what Goodfellas did for the industry. I recognize the technical brilliance of the movie. And I gave it an eight and a half. And I tried to be honest about that. And so for me, if I had to, we haven't done this before. I will give it a 9.75. My enjoyment was a nine and a half. The technical quality yeah, is a 10. It's a 10. Split the difference. And so if I had to, I would say it's a 9.75. Listen, man, I'm not going to pressure you to change your vote. If you if you have a nine and a half in mind, stick with a nine and a half. Like, own it. There are classic movies that we specifically put on this list that I don't like. And when we get to them, I'm going to be in a very small minority saying, I think this movie is awful. Yeah. And you know what? Own it. Like Endgame. I didn't think Endgame was awful. <laughs> you didn't think it was great, though. I didn't think it was great. But you know what is great? <laughs> Casablanca. Ca yeah. I We're nitpicking over a very a half of a number. Right. I agree. I can fully appreciate why anybody and i hope a lot of people would give it a 10 out of 10 it's such a good movie it it has aged so well yeah. i think that's one of the big things like you watch the great escape that we talked about last week and that's a film in color and you can tell it's an older film but it still has more qualities that we can appreciate as a modern audience casablanca is an old 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 movie Black and white, 1942, a completely different era with different ethics, different morality than we have in our current generation. And it's still a perfect movie. And so I I, I want people to rate it a 10 out of 10. I give it a nine out of half, nine and a half yeah. out of 10. I love the movie. Let's hear what you think. Reach out to us. 
on Instagram, at Film Whiskey with an E on Twitter. At Film Whiskey with an E. On Facebook, Film and Whiskey Podcast. Or you can call into our call-in line Give and leave us a, a call. voicemail and nitpick with Brad over half a point. What's the number, Brad? 216-800-5923. Once again, that is... 216-800-5923. And guys, we're still a new podcast. Share it with your friends and family. If you're enjoying what we're putting out there, give it to your friends. Share us with... The world. Give it to your friend. Wrap it up at Christmas time. <laughs> Record it on a cassette tape. Give it to your Aunt Shirley. Guys, for the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I am Bob Book. I am Brad G. We'll see you next time. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Dude, I almost every, said this is. Every time we say that together, yeah. I just feel like... A rush of euphoria? Yeah, I, there's something about it, man. <laughs>